Father Abraham had many sons and daughters. Many sons and daughters had Father Abraham. Everybody now, this is the backdrop for Pomona Valley Church. I know it doesn't quite roll off the tongue like the Sunday school version, but unfortunately the version about ancestor Abraham having many descendants, that doesn't flow very well either. Anyway, welcome to the backdrop where we are looking at Romans 4, this episode where Paul talks about Father Abraham. As I said last time, having read Genesis 15 would be good before listening on because Paul's basically giving the Romans an extended sermon on that important chapter in Abraham's story more broadly. As N.T. Wright emphasizes, Paul is not using Abraham as a proof text or example of an individual who gets righteousness from faith, and now other individuals can also get righteousness from faith. Instead, he is building a sustained argument that including both Jews and Gentiles in the one family of God, not on the basis of circumcision and Sabbath keeping and all the rest, but through faith, was always the goal. That God, in doing this new thing in Jesus— has in fact gotten the old thing back on track. Back on the track it was always supposed to be on. To quote right, Paul presents the story of Abraham to show that in Jesus Christ, God has done what had been promised from the beginning and has thereby created the family whose defining mark is faith in God, the life giver. So with that as preview, let's dive into the first section of Romans 4, verses 1 to 8. What shall we say then? Have we found Abraham to be our ancestor in a human fleshly sense? After all, if Abraham was reckoned in the right on the basis of works, he has grounds to boast, but not in God's presence. So what does the Bible say? Abraham believed God and it was calculated in his favor, indicating that he was in the right. Now, when someone works, the reward they get is not calculated on the basis of generosity, but on the basis of what they are owed. But if someone doesn't work, but simply believes in the one who declares the ungodly to be in the right, that person's faith is calculated on the side of covenant justice. We see the same thing when David speaks of the blessing that comes to someone whom God calculates to be in the right apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawbreaking is forgiven and whose sins have been covered over. Blessed is the person to whom the Lord will not calculate sin. Wright starts things off by translating the first verse fairly differently than most. The NRSV, for example, has, What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor according to the flesh? As opposed to writes, What shall we say then? Have we found Abraham to be our ancestor in a human fleshly sense? This is one of those times where the Greek can be taken in more than one way. In particular, a lot changes based on whether Abraham is the subject or object of the verb. Is Abraham finding something? Or are we finding something about Abraham? And then, is Abraham our ancestor according to the flesh? Or is that the question we're meant to be answering? Among the reasons Wright gives for his choice is that this way of translating it introduces the chapter Paul is writing as opposed to the one that many think he should have written, which kind of hard to argue when you put it like that. (laughs) What Wright means is that Paul is not, as many have taken it, writing chapter four about how people become Christians. You know, what has Abraham gained? Well, he's gained righteousness. And now we too can by becoming Christians. Instead, this chapter, as we will see, is about what sort of family Abraham's descendants are. 
how wide is the scope and what sort of family is it? This is, after all, where we left off in chapter 3, with Paul discussing circumcision and uncircumcision, Jews and Gentiles, that is, and the fact that God is the God of all, that even those who are not Jews according to the flesh can now be part of God's people through trust in Jesus. That discussion flows right into what Paul's saying here. Is Abraham our ancestor in the usual human sense of that word, where we share some genetic material with him? Or is there some other basis by which this family is put together? He will go on to say that, indeed, there is some other basis for joining God's family. Another reason Wright gives for his translation is that Paul often begins sections of his letter with the question, what shall we say then? Before then launching into his argument. The way this verse is often translated has the words which are usually translated, what shall we say then, as part of a longer question, which isn't usually how Paul writes. So that doesn't guarantee that we should translate it the way N.T. Wright does. It is just a piece of evidence in its favor. Now, as we move on to verse 2, we need to keep in mind two things that have shown up in previous episodes. First, that being declared in the right does not mean being morally upstanding, that Abraham was declared to be a good guy. Instead, it is a covenant sort of word, that Abraham is in right relationship with God, so to speak, is made a part of God's family and the promises that are being made about that family. And second, works and works of the law do not refer to doing good things, being a good guy. It refers more particularly to the things Paul has just been talking about in the previous chapter and will continue to talk about in this one. The actions that mark one out as ethnically Jewish, specifically circumcision, but also Sabbath keeping and eating kosher. Those are the works that mark Jews out as distinctively God's people. But are those the only way of showing that you belong to God's people? Paul's point here is that that isn't even how Abraham himself was shown to be part of God's people. Before circumcision, and far before Sabbath and food laws, Abraham had already been declared in the right. Abraham's membership in the covenant was sealed before any works were done. So Abraham's family can't only be defined, Paul is saying, by the presence or absence of those works. The word boast comes up here again, and again, it isn't about bragging so much as complacency, resting securely in being God's people on the basis of having been born a Jew. So what then is the basis for membership in God's family, or in Abraham's family, as Paul is putting it here in this chapter? For this, Paul turns to Genesis 15, verse 6 specifically. Abraham believed God, and it was calculated in his favor, indicating that he was in the right. Or, as you've probably seen it more often, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. N.T. Wright is trying to translate it in a way that pulls out the accounting metaphor that Paul is using when he says, calculated in his favor. In Genesis, this verse is then followed by God and Abraham going through a covenant ritual wherein God makes formal promises to Abraham and his descendants. The righteousness is, again, directly connected to being a part of the covenant. In Genesis, being in the right leads directly to being included in a covenant ceremony with God. This is the point Paul is making from Genesis, that this is how God operates. Faith leads to being in the right, leads to being part of the covenant. Now, as usual, Paul has this whole story in his head and is expecting that his readers will as well. 
This is why I suggested reading Genesis 15 first. But to review, the chapter opens with God promising great rewards and blessings on Abraham, who is confused since he's very old and has no children. In that culture, those two things are incompatible, mutually exclusive. If I am only going to be around to enjoy any of these blessings for a short time longer, because I'm old, and I have no descendants to pass the blessings on to so that they can enjoy them, then there is no great reward, just empty promises. But our God doesn't make empty promises. It's at this point that God promises that a son will be born to Abraham and Sarah, and that Abraham's descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky. And it's this promise that Abraham believes. And that, verse 6 says, is reckoned as righteousness. Abraham is part of God's family, righteous, because he has trusted God. He has had faith that God will actually do what God has said. This is an important point because it's one that Paul expands upon in what is to come. Sometimes people who are very anti-salvation by works, you know, you don't earn your salvation by being good. Sometimes they get uncomfortable with salvation by faith. Because, wait, isn't faith just a work? I believe the right thing and earn my salvation? But that is getting the meaning of faith wrong. Or at least it isn't the sort of faith that Paul is talking about. Faith is not the way we get saved. Faith is the sign that shows where we have put our trust. Abraham's belief shows that he trusts God, which shows that he is already a part of God's family because God's family is made up of those who trust God. God's family, in other words, is open to all who want to be a part of it, but it's an opt-in sort of thing. Trusting God isn't what gets you into God's family. It's what it means to be in God's family. Those in God's family put their trust in God. Trusting God means you're in God's family. There isn't really any way to separate the two. As Wright puts it, Abraham's faith was the sure sign that he was in partnership with God. Faith is the badge the sign that reveals that status of being a member of God's covenant people because it is its key symptom. Verses four and five are Paul using an economic metaphor to illustrate this idea. God considers people part of the family, not because they've earned it like payment for work done. It is, as was said in chapter three, a free gift given to any who trust this God, who believe that this God will do what they have promised to do. Wright thinks that the phrase, who justifies the ungodly, is likely yet another reference to Abraham, who had been, of course, in his pre-character in a Bible story days, a pagan in Ur who had responded to Yahweh's call to move to a new land. He was a Gentile, one of the ungodly, whom God justified. Abraham is, Wright says, thus the forefather, quite specifically, of the Gentiles who come to faith, not merely of Jews. This is, in fact, the beginning of a daring theme, that Abraham is actually more like believing Gentiles than he is like believing Jews. Interestingly, several verses in the Old Testament, including Exodus 23.7, forbid justifying the ungodly, in a legal setting at least. Yet this is exactly what Paul says that God does do. This is especially good news for those who have read the opening chapters of Romans, which put all humanity in that category of ungodly. Because of what Jesus has done, God is able to do what seems at first glance to be unjust, to take the ungodly and proclaim them to be part of God's family. This is what God did for Abraham. It is what they did for David as well. 
Paul closes this section by quoting David in Psalm 32. David too had the experience of God covering over sin and not counting it against him any longer. It is what God did for Abraham. It is what they did for David. It is what Paul says God will do for all who trust that reality. And to seal that point, he continues his discussion of Abraham in verse 9. So then, does this blessing come on circumcised people or on uncircumcised? This is the passage we quoted. His faith was calculated to Abraham as indicating that he was in the right. How was it calculated? When he was circumcised or when he was uncircumcised? It wasn't when he was circumcised. It was when he was uncircumcised. He received circumcision as a sign and seal of the status of covenant membership on the basis of faith, which he had when he was still uncircumcised. This was so that he could be the father of all who believe, even uncircumcised, so that the status of covenant membership can be calculated to their account as well. He is also, of course, the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who follow the steps of faith, which Abraham possessed while still uncircumcised. This passage is, in light of what we've said before, and despite the repetition of circumcised and uncircumcised, fairly straightforward. Since Abraham became part of God's covenant family before being circumcised, then he's the father of both Jews, who are circumcised, and Gentiles, who aren't. The point, as chapter 3 already said, is not circumcision or uncircumcision, but rather trusting God or not trusting God. That's what mattered for Abraham. That's what matters still today, according to Paul. And this connects us back to verse 1, about finding Abraham to be our father according to the flesh, or not. Wright puts it like this, So far from it being necessary for Gentile believers to discover Abraham as their physical father, that is, for them to get circumcised, it is necessary for the Jewish people to discover Abraham to be their uncircumcised father, that is, to share his faith. That's the final verse of what we just read, verse 12. Abraham is the father of the Jews most truly when they follow his faith, not his circumcision. Circumcision for Paul is a sign and seal, as these verses say, of the underlying faith, which is what truly marks them out as the people of God. But the faith can exist with or without the sign. One note here, especially for those who aren't quite sure about taking Paul's word dikaiosune as meaning covenant membership rather than moral goodness, the NRSV translates verse 11 as, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Wright makes it, he received circumcision as a sign and seal of the status of covenant membership. The verse that Paul is referring back to comes in Genesis 17, verse 11, where God says this, you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskins And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Paul surely means to refer to this idea. Circumcision is a sign of dekaiosune, meaning not righteousness in the sense of goodness, but being a part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And so we are on firm ground to read that back into the first chapters of Romans, to think that Paul has all along been meaning, at least primarily, that sort of of dekaiosune. Not how do we get moral perfection, but how do we get to be a part of God's covenant family? How do we join in the covenant promises that God made with Abraham? Okay, moving forward now to the promises that come out of that covenant family status. In Romans 13 to 17, it says this, 
The promise, you see, didn't come to Abraham or to his family through the law. The promise, that is, that he would inherit the world. It came through the covenant justice of faith. For if those who belong to the law are going to inherit, then faith is empty, and the promise has been abolished. For the law stirs up God's anger. But where there is not law, there is not law breaking. That's why it's by faith, so that it can be in accordance with grace, and so that the promise can thereby be validated for the entire family, not simply those who are from the law. But those who share the faith of Abraham, he is the father of us all, just as the Bible says, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened in the presence of the God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that did not exist. In these verses, Paul begins by repeating that these promises, including being a blessing to the whole world, that they predate the law, and therefore they can't be based upon Torah. They are, likewise, based on faith, trusting that God will in fact accomplish what they have said they would do. Paul seems to take the promises made to Abraham about a promised land and combine that with the promise that his family will bless all the nations and combine it further with later words of Isaiah and other prophets that Israel will rule the nations and the Messiah will head up a worldwide kingdom. There are only hints of this in the story of Abraham itself, but it is developed throughout the Old Testament prophets. But there is one development that Paul makes of this expectation, a development that's important to what he has been saying in this chapter about Jews and Gentiles alike belonging to God's family. Most Jewish messianic thought of Paul's day expected that ethnic Israel would be the ones through whom God would rule the world. Paul, as Wright puts it, thought that God will rule the world and will do so through Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, in such a way as to bring all nations equally into God's family. So instead of Israel ultimately ruling over the nations, Jesus partners with all nations to rule over creation. It's a subtle but important distinction Paul's making from the typical Jewish thought of his day. Paul then repeats what he has said previously about Torah, and he will develop this further later, that it is given as a way of showing Israel what it would mean to trust in Yahweh. But their breaking of the law just shows that they've walked away from Yahweh. As we've said before, they were given the oracles of God, but instead of delivering the message to the nations, they lived just like the nations, making it impossible that the nations would hear about the true God unless that God did something to get things back on track. And Paul seals the deal with another reference to Genesis, the promise that Abraham would be the father of many nations, not just the Jewish nation. In the Old Testament, that promise was taken to mean the nations that came out of Ishmael, Abraham's other son, the Edomites and the Malachites and such. Those are the many nations that Abraham has promised. But Paul reads this whole story of Abraham to be about something deeper in light of Jesus. It's not about who, to refer back to 4.1 again, who is ethnically or genetically descended from Abraham. It's about who is included in Abraham's family by faith. The Gentiles becoming part of the one family of God will be Abraham's descendants in the spirit, if not in flesh. This is a brand new thought, a sort of family that's never existed before. It's an example, that is, of God having brought into being something that has not previously existed, bringing life to the world out of death. And now we turn to the final section of this chapter, 
with still more talk of Abraham. Against all hope, but still in hope, Abraham believed that he would become the father of many nations, in line with what had been said to him. That's what your family will be like. He didn't become weak in faith as he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and the lifelessness of Sarah's womb. He didn't waver in unbelief when faced with God's promise. Instead, he grew strong in faith and gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God had the power to accomplish what he had promised. That is why it was calculated to him in terms of covenant justice. But it wasn't written for him alone that it was calculated to him. It was written for us as well. It will be calculated to us too when we believe in the one who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead, the one who was handed over because of our trespasses and raised because of our justification. The first five verses are, again, fairly self-explanatory in light of what we've already talked about. Abraham trusted what God said, despite the obvious obstacles, thus showing that he was, in fact, a member of God's covenant family. This confirms for us that when Paul talks about Abraham's faith, it isn't believing the right intellectual propositions. I like how N.T. Wright puts it. Abraham's faith was not just a general religious belief, an awareness of the other, or of a mysterium tremendum. It was a trust in specific promises that the true God had made, which, if fulfilled, would show this God to be what Paul described in verse 17, the life giver, the creator out of nothing. That last part is really striking, I think, because it is Paul noticing that bringing life out of death is not some new project that God undertakes with Jesus and Jesus' resurrection. This has been what God is like from the time he took Abraham and Sarah, a childless couple far past their childbearing years, and brought a son out of their bodies. Abraham's faith, Wright says, is the sign of life. I would say the sign of life out of death. Life is the gift of God. Justification is God's declaration that where this sign of life appears, the person in whom it appears is within the covenant. In other words, when we see God bringing life out of death in the life of a person or a community, we see echoes of what God did in Abraham and in Jesus. We see confirmation that that person or community is a part of the ongoing family of God. And then Paul closes this first main section of his letter, chapters 1 to 4, by affirming that what was true of Abraham, that is, being a part of God's family on the basis of faith, is true of us as well. Abraham believed that God would accomplish what God had promised, and now when we put our trust in the risen Lord Jesus, we will find ourselves before God in the same place that Abraham did. Again, faith for us is not generic religious feelings, but putting trust in Jesus as the fulfillment of those exact specific promises God made to Abraham so many years before. Again, we see how important the resurrection is to Paul. It is, after all, the confirmation that God is still bringing life out of death, in addition to all we said about it in previous episodes. This is how I understand the final phrase here. Jesus was raised because of our justification, because, again, justification is the declaration that someone is truly a part of the covenant promises, that someone is in Abraham's family, the family of God. It is the resurrection that makes this new thing, this life out of death, this one family come into existence. So Jesus was raised because of our justification. The other part of the final statement, he was handed over for our trespasses, 
refers back to Isaiah 53, 3. This is in the midst of a section of Isaiah that's often called 2nd Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapters 40 to 55. Because it was clearly written with distinct themes from, and maybe even at a later date then, the first 40 chapters of Isaiah. This is the section where many of the Isaiah passages we read at Christmas and Easter come from, including, as here, Isaiah 53, one of what's sometimes called the suffering servant passages. Paul refers back to this passage often in Romans, and it's clear that this is one of the central passages he has in mind to make sense of Jesus's death. In Isaiah, to greatly simplify, since this is a podcast on Romans, not Isaiah, (laughs) you'll have to wait a while for that one, I think. In Isaiah, the servant figure is in some sense killed on behalf of the many, so that the nation as a whole can be healed. The servant is said to take sin upon himself, so it can be dealt with and the people can be restored to their status as part of God's family. Paul gets into this theme more in later sections of Romans, and so he is, as he so often does, concluding the first main section by both looking back and summarizing what came before and hinting forward at what will be expanded on later on. This whole passage is devoted to two twin goals. First, convincing Gentile Christians that they are a part of this one family of God, which has up until now been open only to Jews. And second, convincing Jews that this is not only allowable, but was actually God's plan all along. And the story of Abraham is not just an example of it, it is the foundation for it. Abraham, the genetic father of the Jews, who received the promises of God in such a way through faith, not works, that shows God always intended for non-Jews to be in the family as well. So briefly to sum up the first main section, chapters one to four. All humanity is under the power of capital S sin. The Gentiles, because they're Gentiles and never have been or were pretending to be trusting God. And Jews, because even though they had the Torah and so knew how to put their trust in God, they ended up acting just like the Gentiles. But this isn't the unmitigated disaster that it seems. Because Jesus, as the Jewish Messiah, died and was raised to break the power of sin and make it possible for what God had intended from the very beginning to be accomplished, that God's family would be made up not of Abraham's descendants in terms of genetics, but Abraham's family in terms of those who, like Father Abraham, trust God. Thanks for listening as always. In the next episode, we'll be beginning the second main section of Paul's letter with chapter five. So you can read ahead for that if you'd like. And until then, have a great week. Bye.